Blog Talk Radio. Massachusetts. It's Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm actually in Los Angeles. Chuck is on vacation this week, so I'm broadcasting by myself, but I am broadcasting Monday through Friday at 1 p.m. on the Cyber Station USA Network, the Blog Talk Radio Network, and our radio affiliates. It's July 19, 2012. And we are pushing the boundaries of radio, listening to voices from all sides of the issues of the day. So you are listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. And and we are very glad to have you here. And we hope to hear you on the air because I am home alone today. Uh, so please call us, 424-675-6806. Or you can email us at fairnessradio at gmail.com. Well, like I said, uh, uh, my usual co-host, uh, my friend and colleague, Chuck Morris, is on vacation. He'll be back next week, and we do miss him here. We've got quite a show coming up for you today. David Horowitz, David Horowitz, a New York Times bestselling conservative author, is going to be here. He's got a book out, which, um, surprisingly enough, I'm very glad he wrote, and I'm actually going to recommend it to my progressive uh, friends. There's a lot of things in it I don't agree with. But um, we're going to have an interesting uh, conversation with uh, David um, over what I do agree with and what I don't agree with here. So be sure that uh, you've got your uh, finger on the button of phone calls of your telephone and your email because you can uh, converse with David Horowitz. But there's some other things to talk about first here. What a tragedy in Bulgaria. A um, Jewish tourist group, an Israeli tourist group, was bombed. Seven people died, many, many more injured. Uh, Israel points to Iran as one of the possible perpetrators. Um, uh, we don't know. could have been Hezbollah, which, of course, is an Iranian-funded uh, uh, organization. But what a tragedy. It, um, it makes me angry that things like this still go on. And yes, yes, I know, I know that there are things like that that go on all over the world. I also understand that uh, the Israelis um, uh, unnecessarily harass Palestinians who are trying to just go to work and hold them up for hours, etc. But bombing, but bombing innocent tourists, men, women, and children, is, is we've got to put a stop to this. And uh, I, I don't know how. We're going to have our, our, um, our foreign policy uh, specialist, Ari Ratner, who's himself an Israeli, will be with us tomorrow. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. But uh, if Iran is behind this, Iran needs to be punished. Now, I don't mean by military means. Uh, uh, um, a military attack on Iran would be one of the, the dumbest things we could possibly do. But I think there are ways we can make them hurt. And I'm very glad to see that yet another virus 
has penetrated the Iranian computer network. This will be the third one now. There were Stutniks and then Flame, and now there's another one which is screwing up things there. So maybe we keep this up. And also if we can see to it that the banks that have been uh, helping Iran uh, buy things and uh, sell their oil, um, we uh, maybe we can crack down on those even more. And, and, and of course, we're beginning to uh, uh, find out that a lot of banks, particularly British banks, have been involved in helping to launder money now with, with from Mexican drug cartels. So, so more, more, more regulation of the banks would probably help there. But... Uh, uh, and also cracking down on companies that are selling uh, weapons to Iran. Now, I understand that many of the weapons come from Russia, and we can't really crack down on Russia. But uh, we've got to begin to put an end to this, because this kind of thing has to stop. Anyway, um, that was just my rant for the morning. Uh, and it's not the usual progressive rant, I know, but I just hate to, to see people, innocent people killed. Uh, and I and I realize I'm going to get lots of email from my progressive friends that a lot of innocent people were killed in our illegal war in Iraq, and a lot of innocent people are killed in other places. Um, and, of course, there's a lawsuit going on about our use of drone strikes, but this one just hit home for some reason. Those could have been friends of mine. Uh, oh, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, a uh, 30-second break, um, we're going to be welcoming our radio listeners in. So see if we can play a little music here for 30 seconds. Cyberstation USA. It's the Fairness Radio. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I want to welcome our radio listeners on 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay and KSKQ FM in Ashland, Oregon. I'm co-hosting today's edition of Fairness Radio from Los Angeles. You can join us by email at fairnessradio at gmail.com. That's fairnessradio at gmail.com. And also, please call us, 424-675-6806, 424-675-6806. And after the show, check out our website, fairnessradio.com. One of the things on our website, incidentally, is, is a, a link to uh, one of our sponsors, Barton Publishing. Barton Publishing is your source of information to manage your health and your body naturally without using expensive or toxic drugs. That's there. And there's also a link to uh, petitions you can sign for, for causes you believe in. So check out our website. Well, the Middle East is, is uh, in the news again. Um, the uh, explosion in Syria yesterday, the, the rebels have been able to penetrate the heart, the heart of the Syrian government, of the Assad regime. They they 
killed a defense minister, a deputy defense minister who was Assad's uh, brother-in-law, and uh, other officials by sending off a bomb inside of a guarded, protected, secure conference room in which there was a military meeting going on. That means that there are defectors inside the Syrian military and the Syrian political um, uh, establishment. There's no way, there's no way that that bomb could have, could have been placed unless there were people inside now working um, working against the Syrian government. And of course, we now have a number of generals and diplomats, Syrian generals and diplomats, who have defected. I think the handwriting is on the wall in Syria. And uh, at some point, the Russians and the Chinese, who seem to be seeing that point uh, uh, in any case, are backing down. The Russians had an armed shipment headed for Syria last month, uh, last week, actually, and they turned around and didn't make the deliveries. Uh, I believe it was for anti-missile, anti-aircraft batteries. So I think that the, uh, the days of the Assad regime are numbered. Uh, who knows what will happen after that because as many reporters have told us that uh, yes we're Syria is in a full-scale civil war but it's not a, um, a gray versus blue civil war like ours was it's many many organizations tribes armed groups uh, rebel factions uh, that have united temporarily to overthrow the Assad regime al-Qaeda is in there we're fairly certain of, of that there is money pouring in from various places to various um, factions. So probably there will be a period of uh, extreme chaos after that. Um, I think uh, we have an email here uh, asking me what do I think the deaths of the, uh, of the regime will be, that is of the two major uh, figures in the regime that were killed yesterday. I think that's pretty serious. I think it's very serious. I think that, that this is... Not only are those people going to have to be replaced, and they will be replaced, but not only are they going to be replaced, but this is spreading fear now through the entire Assad regime. Everybody who is at the top of the Assad regime now knows they're not safe. And it's also kicked off a huge witch hunt inside the regime to find out who's not loyal. And any time you have a regime like this in the middle of a war, and they are in the middle of a war, beginning to tear itself apart, over loyalty issues, things aren't going to happen right. Things aren't going to work. More people are going to defect. So I think that uh, this is um, very, very serious. Now, I, I know there's speculation that, uh, the, that the West had something to do with the bomb. I, I have no way of knowing. Maybe we'll ask Ari Rotner when he's with us tomorrow. Uh, that, seems like, that seems very difficult, but one doesn't know, and I wouldn't rule anything out or rule anything in. Um, but I, what one thing I think I can say fairly certainly is that there is going to be a major witch hunt inside the uh, the Assad regime now, and that's only going to make things worse. So maybe we can end the uh, bloodshed that's going on in the regime. What we have an email here from somebody who wants to know about the high speed train in California. Well, there's a topic change for you. Um, Looks like it's been approved from Madera to Stock, not to, uh, to Bakersfield. For those of you who aren't familiar with the intricate details of the California Central Valley, Madera and Bakersfield are two cities in the California Central Valley. Uh, actually, calling them cities is, and I don't want, I don't mean to demean them, but they're they're not really large cities. Uh, Madera is actually a very small city, but it is known for its tri-tip cook-off. Um, 
And Bakersfield is a, uh, a I would, it's a small city again. It's also a major distribution point for uh, produce that comes out of the Central Valley. But neither one of them are what you would call the 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 the, the most sought after stops on the central on the uh, the high speed rail, and it's only 92 miles long, as far as I know, but at this point. So I'm not sure. You know, I love the idea of high speed rail. I love when when I ride when I go to Japan and I ride the Shinkansen or I'm in for God's sakes in Russia when with their high speed rail I haven't ridden that one but I know they have one I've ridden high speed rail in in England and France and and uh, throughout Europe and it's wonderful it's wonderful but we have to keep in mind that Europe has a long history of rail the United States doesn't Japan has a long history of rail. The United States doesn't. Our pass that is passenger rail. Our passenger rail could not compete with airplanes and cars. They just couldn't. And as you now know, um, it's very expensive to take Amtrak. It's a wonderful trip. I used to take Amtrak routinely from um, um, Atlanta to Washington. It was great. You'd get on the train at seven o'clock at night in in Atlanta, and you'd have dinner, and you'd have a, a bed, and you'd get off the train the next morning at at 8 o'clock in the morning, and you could walk to your meeting in Capitol Hill, and you would be fresh. You didn't have to go to the fight at the airport. You've had breakfast. You've read the newspaper. You know, it was great. But um, in, that was a commuter run. Large cross-country, even across a, a large state like California, is very difficult. Uh, it's also very expensive. And you still, you've got to compete with, air, with airplanes, and you've got to compete with uh, automobiles, and that's very difficult. So... Well, I love the idea of, of um, high-speed rail, and I hope we do build high-speed rail. I think that the political compromises that went into this high-speed rail that run it down the Central Valley rather than down the coast um, are a problem. But in any case, we have to take a break now. I think we're going to take about a minute to a minute and a half break here, and when we come back, David Horowitz should be joining us. Stay tuned. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick.
Well, there is much talk now about campaign financing and campaign donations. Since the Citizens United decision, record-breaking amounts of money have been flowing into television ads, campaign organizations, and online organizing. But there's arguably a much more important role of money in American politics than campaign donations. It's the money that flows every day into think tanks, advocacy organizations, PACs, super PACs, book publishers, TV networks, radio shows, films, production companies, PR firms, and book agents. This money comes from both the left and the right, and it's designed, as the Powell memo put it 30 years ago, to shift public opinion one way or the other. It has been an article of faith that conservatives outspend progressives in that particular struggle of ideas hands down. Our next author disputes that and has authored a recent book in which he describes the resources the left uses in its efforts to move public opinion towards is toward its vision of America. David Horowitz is New York Times best-selling author and, and president of the David Horowitz Freedom Center in Los Angeles. The book is The New Leviathan, How the Left-Wing Money Machine Shapes American Politics and Threatens America's Future. David, welcome to Fairness Radio. Well, thank you. Uh, David, um, let me... Let me start by saying that this is an impressive piece of research. There's much in here for me to think about as a progressive, and as a progressive, frankly, it also gives me hope. I don't necessarily agree with your thesis or some of your facts, but it's a piece of work that progressives should read as well as conservatives. And having said that, I want to give you an opportunity to tell our audience what your thesis is and why you wrote this book. Sure, and uh, let me just say that in my experience, you are a very rare progressive. Um, progressives usually don't read and will will ignore this book. Um, uh, there's really no dispute about the amount of money that goes into um, tax-exempt advocacy groups. Uh, the, the, this book, The New Leviathan, that Jacob Laxon and I have written, as uh, I, I didn't count the pages, but close to 100 pages of charts listing all of this information is available on the web. Uh, it just took some effort to to compile it all, but listing uh, all these organizations and the money and the money that they have. Um, just to um, dramatize it, uh, the, the left complains about the. Uh, wealth of the Koch brothers. The Koch brothers actually, on the right, the Koch brothers actually have a 230-odd million dollar foundation. But one left-wing foundation alone, the Ford Foundation, has 10 billion, which is more than 40 times the size of Koch. And there are 14 billion dollar um, left-wing uh, foundations. There are three, three uh, compared to three conservatives. So when we told and, and in identifying the conservative foundations, we used left-wing, um, tr- uh, you know, tables. Um, we we picked the ones that they picked. Uh, but the total of right-wing foundations is about $10 billion, and left-wing is $104 billion. But that's really a, a tip of the iceberg when you have giants like Ford, who have been in this for 30 years, operating. For example, Ford created in effect, the uh, Environmental Resources Defense Council, which is the leading in, uh, progressive environmental group. And we define progressive as any uh, environmental group that blames corporations for most or all of the environmental problems and seeks government uh, as opposed to free market solutions. The 
the Environmental Defense Council is now worth $139 million. There are 553 left-wing environmental groups and only 32 conservative ones, but the 553 left-wing ones have $9.5 billion in assets, which is larger than the annual budget of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, and that compares to $38 million on the conservative side. So that's about 250 to 1. And the, the argument of the book is that all these foundations, conservative and progressive alike, um, are unaccountable to anybody. They, they, they go on forever. They have self-appointing boards. And they're a threat to our democracy because they disenfranchise all the rest of us um, who aren't sitting on these kinds of piles of money. Well, um, that's that's it, the new Leviathan. That's an, inter an interesting statement for you to make, since you're the president of one of those organizations. Free, freely admitted. This okay. will hurt me, but I think it will be good for the country. Okay. Well, you know that, that that's 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 an argument that I don't necessarily disagree with. Uh, I'd like to to point out a couple of things um, that you okay. refer to the assets of all the. Um, the progressive environmental organizations is having a certain dollar amount that's bigger than the budget of the EPA. Keep in mind that assets do not equal expenditures, and particularly when you're talking about foundations. Foundations typically spend between five and six percent of their assets. So the so you really ha in order to make a, a, an honest comparison, you have to compare well, I, expenditures I that, that, to to expenditures, not assets to that's expenditures. That's true, but let let's stop right there. Okay, um, and you're right. Uh, I thought we had a grants. Chart, but you do, um, and I want to get to that okay. in a few minutes. But, but here's the thing: the left is so powerful, as we show in the book. We go over five, I think, policy areas where the left has redefined the national debate, um, on, on, and the environment is one of them. That we're dealing with what used to be a radical left position, and is now the position of the Democratic Party. What, what is that position? When, when the environmental groups, when the environmental group, the, when they lobby, they lobby in Washington, so that the government now funds, and this gives is a reflection of the resources. The federal government gives five hundred and seventy million dollars a year to left-wing environmental groups, and it gives seven hundred and twenty-eight thousand to conservative groups. And that, and, to me, reflects the balance of political forces shaping the issues and the policies well, between elections. Well, from my point of view, that, that's a positive. But I'm, I'm looking at um, where you get those numbers, and this is your appendix um, of XV1. And, and let me say that you've done a marvelous piece of research here. But um, I, I, I just... I want to quibble. Maybe this is a quibble, but in your definition of, of environmental groups as any group that blames corporations for um, environmental damage, uh, let's face it, corporations do cause environmental damage, but in here you've got many organizations that don't do that. Your, your list includes the Trust for Public Lands, the Land Trust Alliance, the Organization for Tropical Studies, the Allegheny you, Land you, Trust, you the Santa Monica Baykeeper, on and on. Organizations that have nothing to do with blaming anybody. The trusts are actually well, capitalistic uh, organizations that that use the market to buy land at market prices. So, I I, I think that you need okay, to clean up this list. Well, no, I, I already have. I, I actually, um, the person responsible for these 
charts, Mike Bauer went over 10,000 organizations. And the environmental ones in particular, and, the, and some of the ones that you named in particular, I asked him uh, about as to why they're on this list, why, why, you know, that they don't seem political on the face. Okay. And he provided me with answers. And they would probably be uh, things like supporting cap and trade or some, uh, what would have been once called far left uh, environmental proposal, but which is now um, the policy proposals of the Obama administration. Not okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, we can, we and, can uh, argue over individual ones. Let me shift just to immigration, which is much Well, wait a minute, I'm not done simpler. with this. Uh, you mentioned cap and Go trade. Ahead. Cap and trade was a Republican idea, and it relies on the market in order to control pollution. Why is that a radical left well, idea? Well, the agenda of the cap and trade crowd. Say that again? Um, we we can't they, both they, talk at once. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, the agenda of the cap and trade crowd is ultimately to have the government controlling all of your energy decisions. That's the agenda. And it, it, as with Obamacare, Obamacare, I'm, I'm sure you will defend it as not a uh, you know, socialized medicine. But the agenda of the Obama administration is to have a single payer, which means the government own the whole health care system. That's their agenda. They don't always get what they want. So, so in, in doing this, I mean, we're, and I've been uh, sort of, not sort of, but studying the left for 50 or 60 years, actually. So I, I understand, and I, I look over time at what the, what the goal is. And, you know, the, the initial proposal sounds reasonable to reasonable people. But when you see, I mean, they want to meter uh, our cars to see how far we drive and start taxing us. I mean, the, the very symbol almost of American freedom, the mobility uh, of being able to get in your car and go where you want and you uh, take the responsibility for the cost is it's the agenda of the cap and trade people to take it away when you switch on your light switch they want to meter it uh, so I'm I, it, you know I, I don't uh, I don't ask people to agree with all the conclusions of this book I think what we have shown is that the, there's such first of all there's this you shadow universe or shadow politics universe uh, which I became aware of because I'm part of it and so I noticed when I was publicly debating issues, uh, for example, on Prop 209, which was uh, Ward Connolly's uh, yeah. Equal, yeah. Yeah, uh, no, no racial preferences amendment, I would be debating uh, representatives from the ACLU and the NACP, who were the official representatives of the campaign, or spokespeople for the campaign, they're, they're tax-exempt as I was. So I realized that, that these political debates, and they are political, Planned Parenthood ran a series of TV ads, not cheap, in Wisconsin, against four Republican legislators in the Scott Walker recall election. Uh, of course, they ran them about the reproductive rights, but, but they ran them to defeat Republicans in an election. And they're tax exempt, and 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 that that's my quarrel. I don't yeah. mind people 
you know, if you want to support a candidate or you want to support a political issue, pay for it. Don't have fair other enough. people tax to pay for your politics. Uh, f- fair enough, and, and as I pointed out in my introduction, that the American political system is rife with these kinds of things. Um, I would I would also note that our our electrical power is already metered. The power company does it, and and in uh, the, the the cap and trade, I don't recall any any uh, proposals to meter people's cars. But let's not get off onto that. Let's just stick with no, the no, I, point. No, no, that's their agenda. They tried uh, it, they floated it, it didn't work. But if Obama uh, gets a second term, they'll do it. Uh, well, we'll we'll see about that. Uh, this, I had a, I had another methodological problem, and I want to ask you about this. Um, as I read the book, I checked your footnotes, which I realize most readers aren't going to do, but being that I'm a college professor, I do check footnotes. And I found that an awful lot of footnotes, um, which you freely admit, go back to the Discover the Network Institute, which you fund, and essentially you were footnoting yourself there. And that's just not good academic uh, protocol. Well, the fact of the matter is, I mean, that, that's that. The first part is true. I don't know about academic protocol. Um, I've done a number of books on universities, and I have a lot of respect for their um, scholarly methods, particularly mm-hmm. on, on the kind of issues that are discussed in this book. But the fact of the matter is that a significant amount of this information was published on Discover the Networks, and, re- and all the research that went into the let me just say, Discover the Networks is an encyclopedia of the left that I put up in 2005. And it's basically a search engine. When you search funders, you're going to get a lot of these organizations, a lot of the foundations that are mentioned in the book. And I actually expected somebody else to write this book, but they didn't. (laughs) So I did. So yeah, I mean, in a sense, quoting myself, but the Discover the Network's research is original, and I can tell you that all the information about the foundations themselves comes off their own websites. Oh, I know. What, I what, agree. What yeah. might be controversial, or which would be controversial, um, as everything that's political is controversial, whether you're on the left or the right, you're arguing an opinion because you're drawing conclusions from facts that other people might not draw as this conversation um, illustrates uh, the. Um, I, I forgot what I was well, driving okay. at. There, but uh, you're 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 saying that. Uh, oh, but yeah, that'll be controversial. I, I you know yeah. I understand that. You okay. you have a different view probably of Obamacare than I do, or uh, of the Open Borders lobby, which is now the Democratic Party. Um, um, well, uh, you know me... the, the the Attorney General can process. It's been three years since the Islamic jihadist uh, Major Hassan murdered 13 soldiers at Fort Dix, an incident described as workplace violence. Three years, and Holder hasn't tried this guy, yet he's gone to the Supreme Court to attack an Arizona law, which is based on federal immigration policy. Well, that's a different topic. Digression. Uh, what set me off on the references is that I actually I ran down one of your references. You were talking about global warming, and I went to the Discover, Discover the Networks, and it cited a um, an article by McIntyre and McKittrich, um, which uh, which 
denounced the uh, and, and said there were mathematical errors in, in the famous hockey stick uh, graph. But mm-hmm. you didn't tell your readers that that paper was investigated by the, the National Academy of Scientists, and which found that uh, there, while some of their complaints were, were correct, it did not uh, actually invalidate the hockey stick graph. And you didn't okay, tell your readers me... that the backup research there by uh, by the in the Wegman report was actually withdrawn by the Journal of Computational Statistics for plagiarism. And I think if you're going to make those kinds of citations, you need to tell your readers the whole story. Well, I, I would. Uh, I, this is a level of scrutiny um, that I, I, I think is unwarranted. I mean, the unfortunately, first of all, this is not a book about the environment. It's a, it's just illustrative. Uh, of of the policy debate in these areas, uh, and the fact of the matter is, I mean, the the, the key issue here would be uh, that Obama, of course, was interviewed by the New Yorker and went, wants to make climate change the center of his policy. Whereas uh, we're in a cooling, we've been in a cooling period for ten years. Scientists are defecting from the global warming thesis in droves, and the main scientific center for for um, registering the data uh, was exposed by hackers to be uh, to have their leading scientists were admitting to cooking the books. Now I don't want to get. It's very tricky when you write a book like this. You, I, I don't want to get deep into the kind of controversies that swirl around global warming. So what I, I was either. hoping. <laughs> but I was hoping in, in portraying, you know, so, yeah, technically, if this was a book about global warming, I agree with you that you you have to examine when something's challenged, you have to examine it, and so forth and so on. But then the whole book would be about global warming. And the main argument of this book is in the weight, first of all, the existence of these foundations, which are accountable to nobody and which are operating on on the, on the public's money uh, as tax exempt and their undue influence and i i wouldn't i don't have a problem if you disagree with something like that or think okay i, I, don't, All right, I just enough. don't think in, with a but fair enough probably have yeah but let let's get to your main point and 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 in some ways i i agree with your main point uh, i should tell you i'm on the board of one of the major progressive organizations i have fundraising responsibilities I've been a director of development for a major university. I've probably raised $100 million from many of those foundations, although all, it was all for engineering stuff. It had nothing to do with politics. So I, and I know many of the people that you've talked about. Drummond Pike is somebody I've known for 25 years, for instance. Uh, and, and I would say that, and, and you may or may not disagree with me on this, the people that you've mentioned, people like Drummond Pike and, and like Rob Stein, who I also know, uh, they're patriots. They believe that uh, they're doing what's necessary to protect America and to keep it uh, an, an American the way the founders wanted it. You may not agree with that, but I'll just tell you that they are. And uh, what you call radical, we call patriotic. And I guess that's that's just the nature of the, the conversation. Uh, I, I'd like to introduce you to the rest of the corpus of my work, which explains that. Of course, even Howard Zinn, who was a lifelong Stalinist and supported every communist movement in his lifetime, would regard himself as a patriot because 
they have their own idea of the future, and they're patriotic towards an America in their imaginations, but not to the existing America, not to this one. You find them on the negative side on almost every issue, particularly uh, when America uh, confronts uh, external enemies. Um, thus, uh, the anti-Iraq so-called anti-war movement, which was nothing of the kind, it was an anti-American movement, uh, if it had been a peace movement, uh, you think there might have been one demonstration in front of the Iraqi embassy to say to Saddam Hussein, you know, observe the truce you signed in 17 UN resolutions, not one. Yet I will bet you uh, anything that if you ask any uh, person who participated in the demonstrations against America's attempt to take down a monster, you will find they consider themselves patriots. Well, well you're they were asking doing it one, for peace. You're, you're asking one, and I do, and I also condemned um, uh, publicly uh, Saddam Hussein's use of Look, uh, use of gas against. I know I'm people. talking to a, an honest man. <laughs> I'd actually like to. I'd actually like to have lunch with you. Uh, well, we are but, in the same um, city. We could do that. <laughs> yes, uh, but the, the fact of the matter is, um, in in these organizations. And also people project onto others what they think their own intentions are. And uh, there are only a few moments that come, uh, that come along that separate them uh, because they, they make the, the, the radicals reveal who they actually are. Uh, so, uh, you know, a lot of people oppose the Iraq war on uh, – on grounds that I would regard as patriotic, although I think they're mistaken. However, all those demonstrations were organized by two groups, one headed by a lifelong communist, Leslie Kagan, and the other by a party, that uh, the Workers' World Party, called International Answer, which aligns uh, with North Korea. Every single anti-Iraq war demonstration was organized by those people. And, uh, of course, Drum and Pike and Tides were funding these people. They have a responsibility. If they are patriots, they should have nothing to do with communists. Uh, We're facing – I mean, that's just where you draw the line. Well, maybe we should should get you and and Drummond on, on the air together. Have you ever met Drummond? No. Oh, okay. When you wrote this, did you call him up and say, we're going to write this about you? Do you have a response? No, he's not that significant a figure in the book. Oh, okay. Well, that's true. Although he, he spent a lot of time I mean, on, his, is... on his mother-in-law um, over at uh, Plowshares. You spent a lot of time. But, of course, she's dead now, so you can't call her up. Uh, I, I, did, we, did we realize that she was his mother-in-law? <laughs> yeah, oh, Plowshares. You didn't, you didn't know that? played a terrible role. Uh, well, I, I um, happen to be a grant recipient of, of plowshares and a, and a dear friend. Well, of, that was probably a good thing they did. Yeah, I mean, you might have been a good thing they did. <laughs> well, and we won a Nobel we we won a Nobel Prize nomination for our work uh, than some of the money. Well, the Nobel it. Prize is run by Norwegian leftists. Who uh, okay, uh, let's get to your to your main point uh, uh, here, and and that is we have all these outside forces, and I might add that 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 you didn't include. Um, 
the conservative media, the uh, Fox News, uh, Rush Limbaugh, the right-wing media, and you also didn't no, include and I all didn't the con- billions of dollars of money that, that the corporations I, used well, to well, lobby, well, and that should be on yeah, the right. Yeah, but that's a specific it book. It's a specific book. I understand I that. In the, I can't throw in the kitchen sink. Okay, all right. Then I left out a, a huge forces on the left. I, I did devote a paragraph. Universities are the largest left-wing think tank. Yeah, you, uh, they you, purge you did talk conservatives about that. from their faculties and curriculum. They uh, they uh, teach an ideological curriculum, which is anti-American. It's about uh, race, gender, and class oppression in America, and America being an imperialist country. That's our university curriculum today. And so that's some massive. universities and some classes. I was a professor I beg at, to at differ with you. Tech, I will we didn't send you the teach pre- any of that. I will... I didn't accuse everybody in the university. And just like there's a whole uh, be, string of, of conservative universities that, that teach uh, uh, well, you can't teach take radical things, too. Any, you, well, uh, we're off the subject of this yeah, book. We are. I just, but, th- that was just an answer. I, Jacob Laxon and I, our previous book was called One Party Classroom. I will ha- happily send you not only that, but the four other books I've written on the universities, okay, which good. make the case. Not, okay. we'll not that, even that... that to your, to your main point, uh, uh, David, and that is that there are all of these external forces, both left and right, and they spend a tremendous amount of money influencing our political uh, system, and many of them right. are actually funded by the political system. Is that something that, that both left and the right should should work on narrowing, or is that, is that a problem? Uh, it, is, but you're the, you're, it is, but you're the first leftist. Maybe, maybe you can introduce me to others. Who, who I could even imagine uh, doing the right thing as opposed to what's politically in their interest. I, you know, I, I ran actually a campaign, just to go back to universities for a minute, uh, for an academic bill of rights. And uh, my, my radical proposal was that wherever there's a controversial issue, or when there's a controversial issue, as there always is in all areas of the humanities and social sciences, there should be two sides presented to the students, and they should be presented fairly, and, uh, and the students should be allowed to make up their own mind. I actually got two liberals in the entire academic universe to support this. I did it for seven years. Well, I was tarred and feathered for proposing um, basically to end the political domination of the curriculum by the left, I was well, portrayed as a McCarthyite. I was even portrayed as a Maoist well, 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 David, uh, and attacked. David, uh, as I'm, I'm a yeah. professor of political science, so I know exactly what you're talking about. But, but I, would, uh, I would have a problem with that because there aren't always two sides. Sometimes there's more than two sides. Uh, sometimes yeah, there's only one that, side and, and, I agree with you. and the other side is, 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 is uh, made up. I agree with you that students should always, be allowed to express it, and uh, I, I went overboard uh, in my classes to do that. And you know what? As a result, my students came out of their classes smarter and much more articulate because I did turn over the articulation to them. But I always made sure that 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 the multiple sides got expressed, and when there wasn't really a multiple side, that there wasn't a necess- there wasn't a need to, uh, to to have a debate that didn't really exist. So. You have all, to look at all my, with more all, nuance. All my books and writings on the universities pay tribute to professors like you. I even have praised 
two liberal schools, Reed College and uh, or Reed University is what it is now in Kenya, yeah. for having a, a, a good curriculum, even though there were, you know, I don't think there were any conservatives on the Reed faculty, and there were only five at Kenyon. They still kept to traditional scholarly standards. And, of course, there, there can be three or four sides, and, of course, some sides aren't worth talking about. Um, but yes, David, I have the to fact of the matter is break. there was no hold, institutional support. Hold, David, hold that thought. I have to do a station break, okay? okay? You listen to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates. We're talking with David Horowitz about his new book, The New Leviathan, and which is available widely in both online and, and uh, bookstores. And uh, you can be a, uh, a member of this conversation. You can call in, 424-675-6806. And also you can send us emails to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. And actually we do have some uh, emails. So, David, why don't you finish that thought, and then I've got some email questions here for you. Uh, you know, I'll take the question. My point is just that there was no support for the Academic Bill of Rights. There was nobody who said, well, David, you need to rewrite this sentence or that sentence. There was just vicious, and I mean vicious, worthy of uh, the days of Stalin, attacks from the American Association of University Professors and the American Federation of Teachers. I wrote a book about this called Reforming Our Universities, which gives the chapter and verse of this. So that, that's why I, I, I'm given to these generalized statements about the left, even though I understand, and even though I understand that even in those peace demonstrations, there were well-meaning people. Um, the fact of the matter is the institutions are dominated by the political activists. They, they're the, they, they run the faculty senates. They have the unions. Um, and they have everybody scared that they're going to denounce them as being a right-winger or a McCarthyite or whatever, or a racist. So let's take questions. Okay. Well, we have, we have a question here from uh, Sandy in Seattle, and, and Sandy says, you keep talking about the, the radicals in the peace demonstrations, but there are also radicals in the conservative demonstrations. Don't forget the people at the Tea parties holding up racist signs about the president and spitting on black members of Congress. There are radicals on all sides. The problem is, is not the political system. The problem is the radicals. Uh, yeah. Uh, this listener is exclusively... Uh, reading left-wing uh, websites. Uh, the spitting incident never happened, and uh, show me the sign. And yes, of course, there are kooks on uh, all sides uh, of the political argument. In fact, politics attracts them. Um, uh, people looking for a home who, who can't relate to any other human being are always in these movements. Uh, but this was the peace movement. This wasn't a fringe element the, the, and this was supported by the Democratic Party. So I, I shouldn't even call it a peace movement. It was a movement to cripple American power, and what it's led to is the rise of Islamo-fascists all over the Middle East. The Muslim Brotherhood is now the dominant force in the Middle East, and that's thanks not only to the communists who led these so-called peace demonstrations, and we're talking now about millions of people, not some fringe elements or one or two incidents, uh, but, but they, the, the Democratic Party 
led this. The Democratic Party led the sabotage of the Iraq War and conducted a propaganda campaign against our country, which was worthy of the enemy, calling the... You know, just take one of these things. The left went out, uh, didn't like, you know, protested Guantanamo because Bush was holding people who were only suspected of terrorism. Barack Obama sits at his desk and identifies terrorists and their suspected terrorists and their families and then blows them up with drones. And where is that so-called anti-war movement? It was actually, never an actually, anti-war David, movement. That so-called anti-war movement has filed two lawsuits uh, against the president for doing exactly that. We're going to see if it's constitutional. Now, where are the demonstrations? Yeah, well, where were the demonstrations they're, against they're busy, the uh, busy intervention in Libya? They're busy, they're busy working on the campaign. And I would also point out that I believe, and, and most progressives believe, that the Iraq war was illegal, and it shouldn't have started. And I know we're going to disagree on that, but uh, that's our I wrote a our book on that, there. too. I'd be happy to I know you did. Um, another, we have one here from, uh, from Stanley in uh, St. Paul, and Stanley wants to know, and we only have a few minutes left, why did the conservatives hate unions so much? Unions, unions gave us the middle class. Unions gave us weekends and the 40-hour week, and yet yet conservatives are constantly bashing unions and saying they inflate wages and they're, they're dishonest and they're run by goons. That's not well, like true most, at all. Like, like, like many progressives familiar to me, this person likes to live in the past. Nobody says that there wasn't a period, um, actually coincident with the Industrial Revolution, uh, that unions were necessary. The point is, today, what do these unions do? Uh, what did the government unions do that were the issue in, in, uh, in Wisconsin? They get uh, politicians by the short hairs uh, and elect them. They, create, they, they tax their members they, uh, who are basically forced into the unions. Look what happened in, in Wisconsin. The minute uh, Walker said uh, the unions don't collect your dues anymore and you don't have to belong to a union to work for the government, half, half the membership of the Municipal Employees Union quit. They got freedom. That's why the unions are against the secret ballot. Why, if the unions are so good, why are they opposed to a secret ballot uh, as to whether you join the union or not? But these are a direct threat to our democracy. That's why we hate the government. Okay, uh, we have um, uh, an email here from Austin, Texas, um, and this is from um, uh, Billy in Austin, Te- Billy42735 in Austin, Texas. The Billy wants to know, while we are shutting down liberal foundations, can we also shut down the billions that corporations use to buy votes? And can we shut down Karl Rove and his GPS organizations, which are also tax-exempt and, and buy votes? Well, you know... I- I, I have a phrase inside every liberal is a totalitarian screaming to get out. Sure. <laughs> and shut down everybody's right to have a voice. Uh, I the think they were referring is, to, wait, to your wait, wait, wait. The, issue, the issue here is these are tax exempt. That's the difference. Uh-huh. Also, you, the, the, the person who asked this question is a religious fanatic when it comes, I guess, to corporations. That, wake up. Corporations fund the left. You you can look at the um, at the statistics in the, in this book I, I've written, the New Leviathan, or you can go up on the web and you'll find the corporations. Of course, they're going to fund the left because they're in the business of maximizing their customers and buying off 
people who attacked them. So I have never gotten a corporate dime, not one, in 25 years of raising money. And that's because they're scared, and they're generally run, uh, you know, I know this will surprise you, by liberals. Uh, actually, Chuck makes that point a lot, and we've, we've gone through the list, and there are liberals who run corporations, and there are, cor- there are conservatives who run corporations, and we find that one reason why it's hard to get a lot of that data is that many of the conservative corporations are actually not public, and therefore they don't have to uh, put out their, uh, their, their meaning there. But keep in mind... Uh, I mean, look, progressive would, well, insurance is a Soros. It's funding, you know, the, the whole Soros operation. Wake up. The Democratic Party is the party of the rich and the elites and, the, you know, and what Rush Limbaugh used to call the arts and croissant crowd. Uh, All well, of America's cultural... The Republican Party and, has taken that yeah. over. And keep in mind that the Koch brothers are ten times as wealthy as uh, George Soros. And also keep in mind that when corporations give money and, lo- and do lobbying, they deduct that from their taxes. They're also tax-funded, uh, tax too. The, the, the entire legal and, and, and uh, lobbying operation of every major corporation, all that money they give to the American Chamber of Commerce, that's tax deductible. Okay, we pay look, for that. My, my reform is this. Okay. The IRS needs to redefine what's political. Right now it's an incredibly narrow definition, support for a candidate or a party. If you are uh, doing work that is obviously political, like uh, you know supporting... Uh, global warming uh, legislation or opposing it, if you're on the right or the left and your agitation is political in this broad sense, you don't get a tax exemption, and that would go for corporations too, and that would clean up this whole problem. Well, you and I would would march arm in arm to the Capitol to make that happen. All right, let's form an organization. (laughs) (laughs) What, a a liberal conservative organization, (laughs) To, to control yeah, the, the, it'll be bipartisan, but I guarantee you it will only get through a, a Republican Congress. Um, I don't think because so at all. I, I, I think it'd have a hard time getting through a Republican Congress. But uh, well, we have a we have a, uh, a, a, a another um, uh, email here from from Austin. It looks like our Austin people are, are awake and running, and our Austin people say. Why do you say that university, universities are all liberal? What about all the Christian universities? Uh, we have many Christian universities here in Texas, and, and they teach not only conservative politics, but many of them deny global warming and also teach that all Muslims are bad people. Uh, if you oh, oh, control oh, the universities, you have to look at all the Christian universities, conservative universities, too, uh, and, and, that's, and that's from uh, First of all, Jenny this Austin. person also, I mean, this is a whole subject. But I point out in my in my books on universities that in the 19th century, universities, they were private and they were doctrinal. That is, they were to train sure. ministers. Yeah. And then we had a great, glorious uh, creation of the modern research university, which was based on different principles. And the uh, thrust of my book is, so I have no quarrel. If you want to form the University of Marxism, as a private university and teach Marxism, I have no problem with that. My problem is with our universities, both state and, uh, and also private, that pretend to honor the principles of academic freedom, which is all of them, and yet have reinstituted a curriculum which I will call doctrinal. It's to institute a doctrine. Every women's studies course in the country, every program, 
is instilling a doctrine of radical feminism. That is, that gender is uh, what they call socially constructed, an absurdity uh, to begin with, but that's the curriculum because it fits the left-wing agenda. And I, now let me clue you in to Christian well, University. David, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to say you can't because we're out of time. Uh, and I well, want can to I say the only school I've ever been banned at is a Catholic university, St. Louis University in Missouri. Well, they shouldn't be banning anybody. For my you, politics. But, but we're, Dave, we're out of time, but this has been a fascinating conversation. I, 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 I hope that we have an opportunity to have you back when my conservative co-host is here. I'll, I'll be happy to, but I'm also going to send you an invitation to lunch. Okay, you do that. And I want to thank you very much. David Horowitz, the book is The New Leviathan. It's available online in the bookstores everywhere. And I do recommend that my uh, progressive friends uh, read it because it gives us hope that maybe we have more money than we thought we did. <laughs> All right? That's it for Hour 1, but don't go away. We'll be back after news with your comments and a look at what happened in the world and the nation this week. And also Ari Ratner, our foreign policy expert, will be with us. This is Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. And uh, <clears throat> you're listening to us on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and on our radio affiliates. So uh, stay tuned. We're back with Hour 2 of Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm usually co-hosting with my friend and colleague, uh, Chuck Morris, but Chuck is on vacation right now, so I'm home alone. But I won't be home alone if you call me and if you email me. Uh, that's uh, 
You can email me. Well, first of all, you can call me at 424-675-6806. That's 424-675-6806. You can also email us here at fairnessradio at uh, gmail.com, fairnessradio at gmail.com. It's July 19th. We are the only radio program in America that routinely listens to voices from all sides. We just heard a very conservative voice, uh, David Horowitz. And um, tomorrow and next week we're going to have some liberal voices. Um, and we'll tell you about those in just a minute. But I want to point out that we are pushing the boundaries of radio. We are broadcasting Monday through Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern. We're heard on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates, and on Stitcher. So we are everywhere. So there's no excuse. Call us, 424-675-6806, and email us, as many of you have, at uh, fairnessradio at gmail.com. And as I said, my uh, co-host uh, Chuck Morris is on vacation, so it's just me today. Uh, a little later on, we're going to have Ari Rotner. Ari is our new foreign policy uh uh, expert, and I think he's going to talk about Syria, and there's a lot of serious things to talk about. We just had David Horowitz on talking about his new, his new book, The New Leviathan, which um, outlines the um, the contours of the progressive, what he calls the progressive money machine. Um, and the reason I said that I find this a hopeful book is because. Um, He's, uh, he's listed a lot more resources than I thought we progressives had. Maybe we actually can save the country from the Koch brothers. Who knows? We're working on that as hard as we can. All right. Needless to say, I take issue with a lot of what he said, and I did take issue with a lot of what he said. I didn't get into heavy debates with him because uh, I wanted to hear what he had to say. Um, David is a um, New York Times bestselling author, and uh, he has a – he has his own particular viewpoint. It, it's very, to me, it's a very extreme viewpoint, but um, um, he researches it uh, well. And I just wanted to give everybody an opportunity to hear what he had to say, based on the emails that we we got. Um, many of you disagreed with him, as did I, uh, particularly about universities as being hotbeds of progressivism. Boy, there wasn't at my university, and I and I taught at a public university. Obviously, it was a liberal university, or rather an engineering university, which is not a liberal university, but uh, I've also taught at UC Berkeley. And, you know, the courses I taught there, they had nothing to do with politics one way or another. And uh, I, I disagree with, with his, um, his assertion that women's studies courses are all teaching radical feminism. And we're going to have an opportunity next week to talk about that because we're going to have the former governor of New Hampshire, Governor Coonan, is going to be with us, and she's just put out a book called The New Feminism. And it, uh, it, it uh, and I'm going to send a copy of it to David so he can bring himself up to date because um, he, I think he's off on the wrong, on the wrong foot there. But uh, you have to, you have to give him his due. He believes very strongly in, in uh, his vision of America. I don't. Uh, and he has uh, spent a lot of time documenting his vision of America, and most of what his documentation, uh, you, uh, the, the facts, the facts are correct. Uh, and we get a lot of conservatives on here who just make stuff up. And David doesn't make stuff up. So we're going to have him back on the air. I'm sure my uh, my co-host uh, Chuck Morris is going to um, um, enjoy that. But uh, right now. I've got a couple of emails left over here, not left over, but that we didn't get to. That uh, And one of them was a really basic question that I wanted to, 
to get to, and that is, and this is from one of our our listeners in New York. We've been getting more listeners in New York, and I noticed that that our face uh, that our um, Block Talk audience has doubled. Yay! Tell all your friends. Tell your friends that we're on uh, ten to noon every day, Monday through Friday, and uh, we're a great show. You're going to get guests here. You aren't going to get anywhere else. We, we interview everybody from Howard Dean to Jim Dement. And boy, that that's quite a range. Maybe I should say from Howard Dean to, to David Horowitz. <laughs> Uh, we just got an email here from Mike in Maine saying, I think David was confusing progressive movement with useful inexperience, is what you, what you see in college and universities. Uh, possibly, but of course he was talking about the professors, and uh, hopefully by the time you're a professor you've gotten over your youthful inexperience. I know I did when I was a professor. Uh, but anyway, back to this um, uh, email here. And the email says, if we don't allow foundations, nonprofits, wealthy people to influence our politics, aren't we damaging the First Amendment? Well, that, of course, cuts right to the heart of the question. And uh, we're, we're going to, let me um, real quickly welcome our affiliates in, and then we're going to get to that question. From Cyber Station USA, it's Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and I want to welcome our radio listeners on 1490WWPR in Tampa Bay, Bradenton, Florida, and KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon. And, of course, Tampa Bay is going to be the scene of the Republican National Convention, and I hope Chuck gets to go. Maybe he can report from the Republican National Convention. And uh, KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon, what a beautiful place been there several times, nestled up in the mountains with redwoods, and it has the best Shakespeare festival in the country. So if you're going to go on vacation in the, the great northwest of the United States, stop in at Ashland, Oregon. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan, incidentally, doing all this free advertising for our affiliates, uh, and uh, I want to say that uh, I'd like to have you join us by email, fairnessradio at gmail.com. Call us, 424-675-6806. Check out our website, fairnessradio.com. And don't forget, if you like us on Facebook and you sign up or you sign up for our Twitter feed, you're going to get every morning advance word of who our guests are. Now, yes, we talk about our guests, we promote our guests, we, we put out a weekly schedule in advance, but things change. People cancel at the last minute. Opportunities come up at the last minute. And so things change, and you'll be the first to know which means you'll have your uh, your records all ready to go there. So uh, like us on Facebook and uh, sign up for our uh, Twitter feed. And, and we have another emailer here who wants to know uh, what my favorite Shakespeare play is. It's Macbeth. Yeah, I, I, I really love uh, the intrigue and, and uh, the stuff that goes on in, in Macbeth. Um, also, I like uh, the, the Shakespeare version of Kiss Me, Kate. <laughs> I'm going to get email on, on that one, too. <laughs> and uh, I'll wait to see how many people uh, call up or call up or email me and correct me on, on what the Shakespeare version of Kiss Me, Kate is or tell me what Kiss Me, Kate is the Shakespeare version of what. But in any case, back to this question. Um, throughout our history, the Supreme Court has held that Speech is speech. That if you want to criticize the government, if you want to push one particular platform, if you want to uh, endorse one particular candidate, that's your business. 
Where we ran into problems is when the Supreme Court held that money equals speech. I disagree with that. And, you know, it's the law of the land. The Supreme Court said it, it, it's the law of the land, but, uh, but I disagree with it. Um, money is not speech. Money is money. Now, there used to be a saying that um, never argue with, with somebody who buys ink by the barrel, and that means that never argue with somebody who runs a newspaper. Today you could say it, never argue with people who, who uh, buys uh, electrons by the barrel or by, or by the, uh, the, the gigaflop or the teraflop these days, right? Um, because ink, teraflops, are all part of the conversation. And that's true. It is. But money is something different. I think that when you equate money with political speech, you're actually taking away political speech. It is the nature of money in capital in capitalism-based countries and societies, which we are, and, and which is the the, the best economic system in the world um, um, that some people are going to have more than others that's the nature of it and that's not necessarily bad but if those people use their money to rig the system so that the people who don't have as much money as they do can't use their political speech you're undermining democracy and unfortunately that's what happens it seems to be a natural tendency of human beings to increase their power. And as we all know, power corrupts. If you've got money, you want more of it. If you've got money, you want, you want to use it for power purposes because it allows you to manipulate the system to give you more money. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who has money is like that. Uh, obviously not. Many people give away their money. They're called philanthropists. But we have many people in our society who use their money to manipulate the system to allow them to make more money, and they manipulate the system so that their money, their political speech counts, and the political speech of people without money doesn't count. Which is why there's a tension between democracy and capitalism. Or actually it's between democracy and wealth. It is very difficult for a person with a lot of wealth, even if that wealth was earned honestly and, and, and did wonderful things for the country, earned by, by creating iPods and, or building the railroads that we need or, or, or whatever, the person who has that wealth finds it very difficult to believe that his or her vote is not worth anything more than the vote of the person who sweeps up their factory. But in a democracy, it is. The person who sweeps up the factory has as much political vote, voting power, as the person who owns the factory. That's the nature of democracy. But that's very hard for the person who owns the factory to believe that or to accept that. They believe it, but they accept it. So they use their money to rig the system. And they rig the system by buying members of Congress. We all know how that works. They rig the system by using the media to put out messages to try to convince other people to vote along with the wealthy people, even if it's against their economic interests. 
they, they rigged the system by by setting by getting people to pass laws to deny people their, their right to vote, vote suppression. We see that going on in nine states right now. They rigged the system in many, many ways, which means that they're using their political dollars to undermine democracy, and that's why I think that dollars should not equal speech. Now, I understand that there are arguments that say that, that that's not right. If Chuck was here, he would he would say, absolutely, you're wrong, that, that dollars don't merely buy speech, and just because you have more dollars and can buy more speech doesn't mean you're being undemocratic. I say you are. I say a real democracy, and I know we're a republic, we're not a democracy, but we're a democratically elected republic. A real democracy levels the field. This is government of, by, and for the people. It's not of, by, and for dollars. It's not of, by, and for dollars. It's of, by, and for the people. And when you give people, when you give money the same power as votes, then you have a serious problem. So that's where I come down on that. We're going to take a break right now. We can take about a minute break. We have our um, our foreign policy uh, person coming up. And uh, so why don't we just... Uh, Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Chuck's on vacation. This is Patrick. I'm home alone, but fortunately you all have been emailing me your questions, so I don't feel quite as alone. And uh, I want to let you know that this uh, this segment is brought to you by Barton Publishing. BartonPublishing.com is your source of information to manage your body and your health naturally without using expensive or toxic drugs. If you go to bartonpublishing.com and you order some of the information there, and keep in mind they don't sell pills, they don't sell cures, you're not going to throw your your crutches away and walk off and say, I'm healed. What you're going to get is information written by doctors and experts that help you control things that may be a problem in your body. When you go to that website, 
and you put in the word fairness in the coupon code, you're going to get an immediate, right there on the screen, 50% reduction in cost, 50% discount. And as soon as you, when you hit the, the button buy, all that information is going to appear right there on your screen. You don't have to wait for the mail person. You don't have to pay any shipping fees or handling fees or anything like that. It's right there. You can get it in hard copy if you want to, but it, most people like it right there on the screen. So that's Barton Publishing, bartonpublishing.com. Well, Ari Ratner is with us. Ari is our new foreign policy contributor. He's a former State Department official, and he's now a private consultant in international trade. And as a private consultant in international trade, he's perfectly positioned to look at issues around the world, which he does every Thursday for us. Ari, welcome to Fairness Radio. Patrick, it's good to be back. Ari, we had a lot of um, email in the first hour asking about what is going on in Syria. Can you give us some insight? Sure, Patrick. I think um, the situation in Damascus is really fast-moving and really um, developing very quickly. But I think yesterday's bombing was a serious blow to the Assad regime. And not only was it a single blow, it was several blows in one. Um, the people who were killed was sort of the equivalent of a National Security Council meeting. Uh, the defense minister, his brother-in-law, appears that the interior minister was also very badly injured, as well as a number of other senior officials. It'll be very difficult for Assad to replace these type of officials. This is a government that is very personal, very insular, and to have a attack of this magnitude is not only... Uh, a devastating uh, sign for them in terms of loss of personnel that will be difficult to replace. It shows that either there's a serious lapse of security or it's perhaps inside God, either from someone close to the power or from uh, a nearby center of power like the military. So Assad, who's already isolated, is further isolated today. Um, and even further isolated as is the battles in Damascus intensified. So I think it's we're approaching the point where we may not be at the end yet, uh, but the end is beginning to be in sight. Um, and it's pretty clear that the regime, which we've been debating for a long time, hang on, could it not? It is, of course, possible to continue and hang on for quite a while, but I think it's, it's less and less likely. It's, it's beginning to look like this regime is on its last legs. Um, that was my analysis, too, and uh, I want to add into that, and, and correct me if you think I'm wrong here. This had to be an inside job. Right. Uh, it certainly has to be an inside job on some level. The question is, what does it mean for be an inside job? This is like bombing, you know, the National Security Council in Washington. So, so obviously they got help. There's rumors that one of the security guards uh, was a suicide bomber. Um, so it, it's clear that someone on the inside circle was penetrated. But whether that's someone who's junior who's being paid off, which is of course devastating in and of itself, or whether it's someone senior, there's a there's a general in Syria who wants to take up the course or amount a coup. It's a bit unclear. Um, and that could have big implications. I mean, if it's someone junior who's being paid off, the, the effect could still be devastating, but it, it might not be another center of power needed to take control. It's in a way, it's, you know, we, we see the alternatives in Syria to, uh, to the Assad regime are either potentially chaos or some other strongman. So, one of the attacks might signal one or the other. But regardless, I think it's pretty clear that someone on the inside helped. Is there any evidence or any, any truth to any of the speculation that the United States or Israel may have had something to do with this? 
certainly none that I've seen. Um, you know, we shouldn't make any mistakes. The United States or Israel have never been friends with Assad, um, you know, despite some diplomatic engagement over the years. Um, so, you know, I don't think anyone in Israel or Jerusalem or Washington is, is weeping over the fate of, of those who are who are killed. We should remember that, you know, while I don't personally share the loss of life of anyone, these are people who have been crack- organizing a brutal crackdown for now 17 months in which 17,000 people have been killed. Um, so I don't think people in Washington or Jerusalem are shedding tears, but in terms of whether they're directly responsible, that's a different story. Um, you know, I would personally doubt whether the CIA or the Mossad was directly involved in this. Now, in terms of indirect involvement, it is true that the opposition, um, you know, broadly speaking, is going to help from a number of U.S. allies, uh, the Persian Gulf countries in particular, Qatar and Saudi Arabia and the UAE, uh, as well as from Turkey, um, with the acknowledgement of the United States, um, with some support from the United States. But that's now several orders removed from the CIA organizing the system itself. I'd, I'd be surprised about that. I, I would too, frankly, and, and uh, we had emails uh, asking us about that, and you know, I, I demurred on that. Now, it also appears to me, and I'd like to have your insight on this, uh, that this is going to launch an internal witch hunt inside of Syria, and that is also going to help that, that be destabilizing too, and will probably force more people to leave this, this the Assad regime. What do you think on that? I think that's exactly right. Um, you've already seen it a bit. I mean, the crackdown in the capital, the, it's important to remember there were clashes in the capital already for a few days before this attack, but they've intensified today. And you'll see that there'll be a number of people in, inside the the regime or at the level of a sort of circle two, you know, colonels and generals who are now looking over their back, um, you know, and you'll get a situation where a lot of rats are going to start fleeing the ship, which has already been happening before the bombing, and I think it's going to intensify. The, the reaction from the regime uh, will likely be very brutal. This is already a very brutal regime, and this is probably the most serious terrorist attack from their perspective um, that they've ever suffered. So I would expect the, the reaction to be quite brutal, but in and of itself, that brutal reaction will also hasten their downfall as more and more people affect, um, and more and more people leave purely out of fear. Yeah, that would uh, this would be equivalent to saying the Situation Room being bombed. So I think you're, you're this is very serious attack. Let, 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 let's talk about what happens next. Um, I, I think you're right. The handwriting is on the wall that um, the, uh, the the Syrian regime is going to fall. That we are seeing that if not if not the final days, uh, we're seeing the beginning of uh, uh, of the the final trajectory. So what happens afterwards? What, what I've been told is that uh, Syria is in a full-scale civil war, but it's not a gray and black civil war the way we have in this country. It's many, many separate um, forces, al-Qaeda, tribes, um, uh, rebels of various kinds of foreign influence, all sort of banded together. But when Assad does leave, finally, that the, I think the country is probably going to break down into chaos and go back into another civil war. What do you think? You know, it's very difficult to tell, and I, I think you've already seen in the international community that debates start to switch from will Assad go or how should we get Assad to go from the American perspective to what replaces him. And this is going to be very, very difficult. The, the likelihood 
that there is some sort of chaos or at least a power vacuum into which there could be a civil war or large-scale violence is, is of course, quite high. From the American perspective, it's very clear what we want to see. Uh, we want to see a, a Syria where stability is restored, where security is restored, where the human rights of all Syrians, regardless of their religion or their ethnicity, are respected, and where the country has a chance to rebuild after not just this 17-month conflict, but after quite... Of course, we don't have any real leverage on that, do we? You know, we're losing you, Ari. Uh, yeah. we're, lo- we're 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 losing you. Hello. Looks like we're Patrick, having. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you now. You're back. Okay. And now you're gone. Uh, why don't we take a quick break while we try and get uh, um, while we try and get uh, Ari back? Can we uh, take a quick break? So we were talking about what happens next, and my understanding is that uh, this that this is a, a multiple civil war situation, uh, and that the United States really doesn't have any leverage. Now, does the U.S. have any leverage? We have some leverage, of course. It, it's uh, there's certain things we could do to make it stronger. Oh, there you go again. Uh, are you on a cell phone, uh, Ari? Yeah, I'm afraid we're we're losing you. Why don't we uh we we take about a 2 minute break and see if we can get we can call you back, okay? Great. Um,
and there you are. Now, does the U.S. have any leverage at all on the situation in Syria? I think it's important to realize that we have limited leverage, but we have some leverage. Uh, after the, the regime is gone, there's going to be some presence of U.S. special forces. There's already rumors that they're there working on things like um, making sure that stockpiles of chemical weapons get secured. Um, but in terms of broader leverage, look, we're still the United States. We still have the convening power of all our allies in the Gulf and Turkey, who are neighbors. Um, but there is going to be a vacuum there, and different countries have different interests. You're going to see the Russians play there, the Iranians play there, Hezbollah is going to play there, our allies are going to play there. And it's important that we come to the table with something significant. You know, we haven't fought a war in Syria in the way that we have in Iraq or Libya. We spent almost no money on this situation, which I think most Americans would support. But I think it would be smart if we set aside a small pot of money relative to what a war would have cost or relative to what an intervention would have cost, a billion or $2 billion, to create something like the U.S.-Syria um, strategic partnership or economic partnership so that we come to the table not just with special forces, not just with our diplomatic power, but with real money in play, because all our adversaries are also going to come with real money in play. And if we don't do that, our leverage will be diminished even more. What would we do with that money? I think um, uh, I'm just proposing this out, out front. Um, I, I would say that you know it's going to be very difficult to immediately program that money, but if we could create a trust sort of in the way Syria flipping, Syria leaving the Assad regime is one of the biggest strategic shifts in the region since Egypt changing in 1979 from the Soviet camp to the American camp. And we compensated the Egyptians very heavily for that. Part of that, of course, was the Camp David Corps that we gave them. A lot of economic aid and a lot of military aid. I don't think anyone wants to give the Syrians military aid. But they are going to require serious international assistance. And the United States can put together an international group and bring its own money to the table. And that money could be used for whatever purposes the United States and the new government of Syria hope to use it for, reconstruction, humanitarian assistance, education, you know, restoring security, um, you know, it could be worked out. But it's just a sign of the new type of relationship we seek with Syria. Um, and I think it would be important to note for Congress and for, for your viewers that this isn't just, you know, assistance or American largesse. This is really an investment. Syria is changing camps like this moving away potentially from its ally in Iran, moving away from its ally in Hezbollah, has been an American imperative strategically in the Middle East for 20 or 30 years. Uh, if this happens and we don't take advantage of it, it's a huge missed opportunity. Well, of course, as political scientists say, this is crisis, choice, and change. And uh, we have an, and as you say, there's an opportunity. But do you really think there's an opportunity? There uh, are, are any of the various factions that are fighting possibly in any possible way pro-American? Well, it depends what you mean by pro-American. Um, I would say this. Uh, Middle East is often a place where the enemy is your enemy is your friend. So there's clearly elements, you know, such as al-Qaeda, that aren't going to be pro-American in any sense. Uh, but there are clearly elements who will. Um, you know, we haven't been a friend of the Assad regime. They know um, that we've given support morally in terms of what we've said about the Assad regime, but also financially and, and militarily even through our allies. And they're going to be looking for new friends in the region. And they know what Syria, the Assad regime's old friends in Iran and Hezbollah and Russia have been doing with supplying weapons. So there will be people who will be open to a new relationship with the United States. Is it going to be a perfect relationship? Of 
course not. There's going to be all sorts of difficulties. But is it a chance for a new beginning? It could be. Um, and I think if we just immediately write off the opposition as inherently anti-American, even though there are elements that are, we could miss a chance for for a real, if not necessarily an alliance, but a real strong working relationship and a chance for a new beginning with what will be a new Syria. Uh, even as it goes through a period of chaos, something will emerge and it's important that we have a close relationship and that we have a continuing relationship with whatever leadership emerged because well, Syria is such that. a critical country. Yes, I agree with that. Uh, and I wasn't writing off um, uh, the opportunity there or any of the factions, but I did notice... No, I know you're not, but, but yeah. people do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I noticed that there is some kind of a, a right-wing conspiracy theory going on now, Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh and various people saying that the... Uh, the State Department is, is is a longtime supporter, a secret supporter of the Muslim Brotherhood, and that has spilled into uh, the Secretary of State uh, being uh, pelted with tomatoes while she's busy trying to convince the, the new leader of um, uh, Egypt to, uh, to keep his uh, treaty with Israel. So it gets harder. I mean, the amount, the amount of lies and misinformation that are spread around the world almost instantaneously these days make it very difficult to, to conduct any kind of rational diplomacy, and I, I imagine that the same thing's going to happen in Syria, too. Oh, yeah, it's very sad. You know, I think you, conspiracy theories are something you expect in the Middle East, but to see not only Glenn Beck, but Michelle Bachman, who, even though she's crazy, is a member of Congress, accused Huma Abedan, who's one of Hillary Clinton's deputy chiefs of staff, uh, married to Anthony Weiner, is also known for that, but of being a uh, an agent of the Muslim Brotherhood isn't just wrong, which it is. It's quite frankly, it's sick, um, and it's the kind of thing that has to stop in this country. I think the, uh, the, the that uh, the woman involved should should sue should sue Michelle, Michelle Bachman for uh, uh, libel and character assassination, and that the State Department yeah, it, should should send a, a very strong note saying you are endangering Israel by doing this. Yeah, and good for John McCain for standing up for it yesterday. He took yes. the Senate floor to denounce it. Yes. If, if, I think and, that's important. If, and uh, if, our, if our listeners don't uh, know what we're talking about, and our listeners, of course, you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates. Um, what we're talking about here is that um, the Secretary of State was in Egypt uh, two days ago, I believe, uh, and met with the new president of um of uh, Egypt, who is one who is a uh, uh, from the mother, Muslim Brotherhood, although he's not currently a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, they, he wasn't the person they wanted to have elected. Um, and one of the, the major topics there was to convince uh, Egypt to um, continue to be ally of the United States and to continue to honor its treaties with Israel. When she left the meeting, which was in Alexandria, she was uh, pelted with tomatoes and shoes and signs saying. You supported the Muslim Brotherhood in the elections, and you manipulated the elections uh, uh, so that we got the Muslim Brotherhood instead of the person we wanted. That, and you, you would think, where would that come from? Because the United States has been an implacable enemy of the Brotherhood for years. It has provided aid to Hosni Mubarak to help jail the Brotherhood and um, to search them down. Um, has even listed members of the Brotherhood as, as terrorist organizations, and all of a sudden this pops up and. What it gets traced back to is this conspiracy theory that is being broadcast by Glenn Beck, Rush Limbaugh, and now Congresswoman Michelle Bachman, that the deputy to the uh, Secretary of uh, State 
um, is a secret agent of the Muslim Brotherhood simply because she's of Arabic extraction. So that's what that happens. Uh, just, and that's the kind of thing that makes diplomacy very, very difficult when we have Middle East-type conspiracy theories running rampant in the U.S. Congress. Oh, yeah, Patrick, it's crazy. And for anyone who knows Huma, um, who's Hillary's aide, is, is not only you know committed American citizen who's dedicated her life to public service, she's you know, far from being an Islamic extremist, as you can imagine, she's actually um, very well known for being extremely elegant. She wears Oscar de la Renta and is sort of a, a very known figure in, in Washington. She's been working for Hillary Clinton for over 10 or 20 years since Hillary Clinton was a first lady. Um, so if you're going to believe that Huma Abedan is a member of Muslim Brotherhood, you got to believe that Hillary Clinton is also a member of Muslim Brotherhood. And that's that's the kind of conspiracy that you got to be pretty far off the deep end to believe. So if you're in that camp, you know, there's a point where diplomacy internationally or at home loses its utility. And if you believe that Hillary Clinton is trying to undermine the United States by becoming secretly a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, then you're pretty far off the deep end. Which, of course, objects mightily to people like the women uh, have holding down positions like Secretary of State. You know, uh, sometimes... Uh, the conspiracy wackos uh, in, in the uh, the right wing, I just amaze me uh, that they don't listen to themselves, that they don't they they just run off the mouth with these things with no thought. It's, it, it's like their uh, their their wildest dreams are directly connected to their mouth, and there's no brain in between. Now you could you know Rush Limbaugh and and, and Glenn Beck have a right to say anything they 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 want to on their program. But when a member of Congress starts saying that, then we've got a problem, uh, because that let, lends credulity to it, and it also causes decision in, in the U.S. government, and it also is a member of Congress intruding on an area where the constitutionally the um, the administration is uh, supreme. But the worst thing about it is is that Michelle Bachman's endangering Israel, and and and. And, and for that, she should. And I'm glad that uh, that Senator McCain condemned her, and I think that Congress should should censor her for that. And I think that the people who elected her should throw her out. But that's just my opinion. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I would say, while it is, of course, bad that she's endangering Israel and endangering American interests, the, the worst thing about it, in my opinion, is she's going against what it means to be an American. You know, in this country, we believe that if you come here and you're a citizen and you work hard and you play by the rules that no one should judge you based on where your family's from or based on what you choose to believe, the privacy of your own church, your own synagogue, your own mosque, and to go after people not because of what they, anything that they've done, not even because of anything that their parents done, but because simply their parents happen to be born somewhere and they, through their own hard work, rose to a prominent position is, is it's something that this country isn't about and it shouldn't be about. And... You know, that's the kind of country that Michelle Bachman thinks that we're living in. She's confusing America with what she thinks the Muslim Brotherhood is, because that's more reminiscent of what they are than what this country is. Well, yeah, I think well, maybe we've probably said enough on that. Uh, I'm going to take a, uh, a quick break for station identification, and uh, can you stay with us for a few minutes, uh, Ari? Uh, there's a couple of, of things I'd, l I'd like to ask you about, okay? Um, I want to ask my producer, Lars, uh, could we have a little break music here?
for our listeners, we're having a little bit of technical difficulty. Usually the break music is controlled by our uh, Los Angeles studio. Here it is here. We'll be right back. Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates. And also, we're heard on Stitcher now, so we're, we're wherever you want to be. And incidentally, if you like us on Facebook or you subscribe to our Twitter feed, you'll get advance notice on who our guests are. Sometimes we have last-minute changes, and you'll find out before anybody else. You can have your questions ready. And we do have a couple of questions. We have several questions here. Um, on what's going on in Israel, so I'll get to those in just a minute. We're talking to our regular foreign policy contributor, Ari Ratner. And uh, Ari, well, we've got a couple of questions here from uh, from our emailers uh, who want to know what's happening in Israel. It looks like the government is going to fall. What's, the, what's going on there? Yeah, Patrick, it's not exactly that the government is going to fall. It's that one of the major parties, Kadima, is going to withdraw from the government. So about Actually, exactly 70 days ago, Kadima, which is the centrist party created by Ariel Sharon, joined the government of, of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who represents the Likud party, which is the right-wing party, um, the sort of Republican party. Uh, he had a coalition of his party and parties that were to the right of him, uh, so religious parties and even more nationalist parties. And Kadima entered the government um, in part uh, to provide Netanyahu, in part to avoid elections, which is a complicated issue in Israel, but in part to, the idea was that it would give Netanyahu a broader base and he could maneuver more deftly vis-a-vis Iran, vis-a-vis the Palestinians, vis-a-vis America by having a wider coalition. Um, and then in the recent days, there's been a very controversial issue in Israel, which is who gets drafted uh, into the army or into national public service. As you know, most Israelis have universal conscription, um, but both the Arab sector and the Orthodox Jewish sector is excluded from that, and that's a big internal Israeli contentious issue. And there was a dispute between this centrist party, Kadima, and Netanyahu's party, and Kadima's leaving the government. So what that means is the Netanyahu government is still in power, um, but it's a much smaller uh, majority that they have in the Knesset, which is the Israeli parliament. Um, They could operate in as they had for almost two years prior um, with a more narrower government, or there could be earlier elections. So it's, it's not that the government's going to fall, it's just that the, the margin for 
Prime Minister Netanyahu's coalition is much smaller. It could lead to early elections. Of course, Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel right now is very popular, um, you know, despite uh, a lot of problems that I personally have, but he's very popular. So he may very well likely win those elections, even with a bigger majority, but that would those elections haven't been called yet. So it would, it's still in the future whether there's going to be elections now or whether he'll just continue with a more narrow or more right-wing government. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> does this uh, reflect a larger problem in Israeli society of tension between the uh, the ultra-Orthodox and the rest of the society, and the rest of society is beginning to sort of ha- have it up to here with the ultra-Orthodox? You're, you're cutting out again. Hello. Looks like we're having some uh, some technical difficulties here, and and uh, while while Ari tries to come back, uh, let me just point out that uh, as, as Ari said, the ultra orthodox have been exempt from the draft, and they and they get uh, welfare uh, while they're exempt from the draft, and many people in Israel are beginning to um, uh, to object to that, and they're saying that they shouldn't be supporting the ultra orthodox; they should go out and get jobs like everybody else, and that they should also um, uh, go into the military just like everybody else. Now, of course, that, that those are questions that the Israeli people have have to decide, but apparently that's causing some tension. Uh, we've lost Ari. Up. He's going to see if he can call back in. I'm not quite sure why his uh, his landline is giving him troubles there, but we've had we've had gremlins uh, all day today <laughs> and, and yesterday too. And this happens. This is a very complex uh, radio. Is very complex these days. Uh, I've got three computer screens sitting here in front of me, um, but uh, we shall see if he's able to come back in. Um, and I certainly hope he is because we've got a lot of your questions here. So we're going to try to see if we can uh, see if, see if we can get Ari back in. Um, like I say, he's uh, um, he's on a landline, and usually we don't have these kinds of problems with landlines. So, not quite sure why he's why we're having a a problem with him. He's calling in from a Los Angeles number too. So, and he's calling the LA studio. So all these things should all work well, but you know you never know. So we're gonna we're gonna call we're gonna try to call him again, and maybe we'll get him back. And because I know a lot of you want to answer questions. Oh wait, here he is. He's back. He's back. Hi, Ari. Hi, Patrick. I, I really have to apologize to you and your viewers. Uh, there was a big storm in Washington a couple of weeks ago, and the phone service is still off and on since then. So even in our nation's capital, you see this decline in infrastructure really affects people. So I apologize. Oh, that's okay. Uh, and interestingly enough, the decline in infrastructure, that's private infrastructure. That's not government. That means the phone companies are taking our money, and they're not reinvesting it in phone lines. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's still people without power from a storm two or three weeks ago by now. You're kidding. No, oh. not many. I, I have power, but I've, I've noticed my phone on a landline, but my phone calls have been dropping in and out. So. Oh. Um, so we've, got a, we've got a number of emails here who want to know why Russia and China recently vetoed a United Nations Security Council resolution to address the Syrian crisis. What, what have Russia and China got to do with Syria? 
I think there's two things going on. We can look at it from a Russian perspective and from a Chinese perspective. But, but for both of them, I think the primary reason is they fear that change in Damascus may also lead to change in Beijing or change in Moscow. You have to remember that the Russians, of course, and the Chinese are also authoritarian countries. The Russians have had large protests over the winter. Uh, the Chinese haven't had much protests. They've had some protests, but they're both scared to death of the Arab Spring. So the notion that any other dictator will fall anywhere in the world scares them. In addition to that, from the Russian perspective, Syria is a long-time Russian ally, going all the way back to the beginning of a Cold War. The Russians still have a base uh, uh, their only naval base outside of the former Soviet Union is in Syria, uh, and they're a large arms supplier to the Syrians. So for the Russians, Syria is sort of a last outpost of influence in the Middle East, um, as well as an important client, um, both in the metaphysical, metaphorical sense and also in the weapon sense. In the finance um, so that, Yeah, in the finance sense. So that's an issue for the Russians. Um, that the Chinese don't quite have. The Chinese don't have those kind of ties with the Syrian regime. Um, and there's another factor for both of them that's also true, which is, you know, both China and Russia benefit from the United States being bogged down somewhere else in the world. Um, so in their mind, a, a democratic Syria not only presents domestic problems for them, but presents strategic problems for them. There's one less state that's a nuisance to the United States, which means there's more attention the United States can play to Russia or China. So for all those reasons, the domestic reason, the strategic reason for Russia in terms of an ally, and also the strategic reason in that it's another nuisance for the United States, means that they're going to continue to be unhelpful internationally. They might be less unhelpful, but they're going to be unhelpful for the most part. You know, that this brings up an interesting question. Uh, as we said earlier, the Assad regime is, is, uh, looks like it's, it's on its way out. We don't know what's going to take over, but whatever takes over is going to have to deal with the Russian uh, naval base. And I wonder how the U.S. feels about the Russian naval base. You know, Russia is no longer an enemy. They're, they're supposedly an ally and a trading partner. Uh, do you think that the United States uh, State, the State Department uh, would have a problem with a, or the military would have a problem with the, uh, the Russians having a naval base in Syria? You know, from our perspective, this is a well-known quantity. They've had the naval base for years and years. It's actually quite a small naval base. So it, it doesn't propose, propose or uh, hold any sort of strategic threat for the United States. So I don't think we necessarily have a problem. But the real question is not what the United States thinks about it. It's what the new regime in Syria thinks about it. Of course. Uh, you know, it's not us for us to decide. It's for them to decide. And I, I would say no matter who takes over, given the fact that the Russians have been supplying helicopters, tanks, weapons that have been used on innocent protesters in Syria, I'd, I'd be surprised if they were, you know, willing to keep that base open. Um, they may, they may strike some deal with the Russians, but I think you're going to see Syria move out of the Russian orbit, no matter who takes over. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. I, I know that, uh, well, there was a, a story this morning uh, in the New York Times that the uh, the Pentagon and the State Department are already beginning to plan for a post-Assad Syria and they're doing that in talks with the Israeli defense officials, uh, saying that Israel might want to move to destroy Syrian weapons facilities and things like that. Um, have you, do you have any sort of inside information of your own as to what kind of planning the, the, the uh, U.S. government is doing for the post-Assad Syria? 
Well, I, I certainly haven't been involved in the planning myself, but I've, I have no doubt that both the Pentagon and the State Department at the White House, that planning is, is underway. Um, of course, it's a very difficult, very complicated situation. Undoubtedly, part of that planning would be very close consultations uh, with our allies in the region. Israel, of course, Hillary Clinton was actually in Israel uh, just yesterday and the day before, so I'm sure this was a big topic of conversation. Uh, but we're also talking to the Turks, who are a neighbor of Syria, um, as well as many governments in the region, in the Gulf and Iraq, um, because this is going to be a very, it's, a, it's really a regional conflict that's going on in Syria. It's, it's an internal civil war that many countries are involved in. And this, of course, has big implications for Iran as well. Syria is Iran's main Arab ally. And if the Syrian regime changes hands, that will make Iran more isolated uh, and will make it harder for them to maintain their position of belligerence, not only towards Israel, but towards the United States. Which means that Iran is going to try to influence whatever um, a new regime takes over in Syria, too. There's going to be a lot of hands stirring this pot. Exactly. And, uh, uh, and of course, Hezbollah in Lebanon will also um, try and influence a pretty strong military force. Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, actually gave a speech yesterday. He very rarely gives a speech because he fears being assassinated but he gave a speech defending Assad yesterday. Um, and you'll see that Assad, uh, Nasrallah, the Hezbollah leader in Iran, were very popular in Syria for quite a while. They were seen as sort of standing up to Israel. And you've seen their, their images being burned um, in Damascus for quite a while now, for over a year. So those countries' positions are going to weaken, but they will have their allies, and they will try and interfere. Well, that being the case, that we've got Iran interested, we've got Russia vitally interested, we've got Israel very interested, we've got Hezbollah interested, we've got Turkey, which now has a, um, uh, a refugee population on its border and also, frankly, has apparently has been used as a refuge by the rebels. There's going to be quite a bit of push and pull of what's going on. Everybody's going to have their horse in the race. Everybody's going to be putting in money. Uh, everybody's going to be putting in people. So it, it that, to me, tells me that um, it's going to be a while before the dust settles in Syria, and it's going to be a while before a, um, a final government emerges there, and there may even be some more bloodshed. It wouldn't surprise me if some of the rebel groups turn against one another, or if, uh, if even after um, uh, Assad leaves, if we don't see a, um, a, a Sunni Alawite civil war continue on. I think we're going to see problems in Syria for, for some time to come. Uh, I, I think that's certainly true, and, and it's important to note, of course, that Syria is not happening in an isolation. You know, even in Libya, there's still violence today. Um, the situation in Egypt, which is, of course, much better than in Syria, is still politically unstable. And you're going to see these kind of transformations play out really across the region. And, it, and it's important to note the countries that we're not talking about that will have transformations of some sort Sometime in the future, Saudi Arabia, uh, a very important country for America because of its oil resources, for the world because of its oil resources, may also be affected eventually by this kind of transformation. The rest of the countries of the Gulf may be affected. Iran itself may be affected. You are coming into a situation where dictatorships, no matter who you are, no matter whether you're our friend or our enemy, being a lot less, with a lot less secure to be a dictator in the Middle East these days. Well, that's it for today. I'm afraid we're out of time, Ari, but I thank you very much. We, uh, we know a lot more about uh, the situation in Syria than we did before, and um, 
I want to thank you. We'll, we'll have you back next Thursday. I look forward to it, Pastor. Thank you so much. And that's it for today. Tomorrow is Music Friday. Dark Beauty Band is going to be with us. And, of course, we're going to have our regular environmental contributor, Jeffrey Lean. And at the top of the hour, a special treat, author Greg Mutit and his shocking new book on the role of oil in starting the war in Iraq. You've been listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick from the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our affiliates. Don't forget our website, fairnessradio.com. And like us on Facebook, sign up for our Twitter feed so you know who our guests are in advance. And uh, don't forget also to stay tuned for Mike Siegel on the Cyber Station USA Network. Good night, everybody.